0: Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also have to pick one thing that they'd like to get rid of, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My special guest in this episode is the entertainer, writer, and pianist, Bobby Crush, first came to public attention after six winning appearances on Huey Green's British ITV talent show Opportunity Knocks in 1972. Yep, it's a long time ago, and he's been at it ever since. By the age of 18, he'd starred at the London Palladium, had a hit single and album, and Bobby's name now appears on the Roll of Honour at the Palladium stage door as a result of his regular performances there, including Royal Variety performances. He spent a year at the Victoria Palace with Max Bygraves. He toured Canada, Australia and New Zealand with Sir Harry Secombe. He's played Liberace in Liberace's Suit, Frank and Ferta in the Rocky Horror Show, Billy Flynn in Chicago, and he's played Jerry in the musical Summer Holiday. He's made 13 studio albums and has appeared in stage shows with Julie Andrews, Gene Pitney and Jack Jones. Yep, yeah, the old Jack Jones, as we explain in this podcast. Bobby has appeared in 35 pantomimes since 1973 and has written the score for three pantos and comedy material for Russ Abbott, Les Dennis and Dustin G. His greatest success... Alright, not necessarily greatest, his biggest success as a songwriter was penning the music and lyrics for Keith Harris and Orville's hit Orville's Song, also known as I Wish I Could Fly, which reached number four in the UK single charts and sold a quarter of a million copies. Imagine making money out of a novelty song. <laughs> oh, the chicken. And... Anyway, let's find out what the entertainment icon Bobby Crush would choose from his extraordinary life to put in a time capsule. Hello? How's that sound? Good?
2: Oh, perfect. I can hear you perfectly. Yeah.
0: There we are then. That's marvellous. Marvellous indeed. Oh, uh, Well okay. done. Congratulations to both of us for struggling through. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what a career, what a life you've had.
2: Not bad. Not bad for an old bag.
0: It's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I did a little reminder just in case there were things I'd forgotten. And of course, I'd completely forgotten Orville the Duck. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't know Tunbridge Wells. I didn't know you'd done pantomime there.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, but that was one of 37. I did my first one when I was 18, so, you know, and I'm 68 now. This is my 50th year in the business. So there's only been a few years that I've not done Panto Mm. when I've perhaps been in a Western show or I've been on a ship or for some reason chose not to do Panto that year. But most years I... I swung up and down the stage saying, has anyone seen my son, Aladdin? So, uh, but yeah, we can can talk about all this. Well, uh, Bobby, let's do it then. Let's talk about the five
0: things you want to put into a time capsule, which I can't wait to hear. (laughs) Bobby Crush, the marvellous Bobby Crush, welcome to my time capsule. How lovely to have you as a guest on it.
2: Thank you, Michael, and thank you for getting me up much earlier than I would normally uh, <laughs> emerge from my pit. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I've been sober I don't normally get up until twelve, but anyway, <laughs> and it was a late night last night because so I went to see a friend of mine in cabaret. So, uh, oh. but I, I'm surprisingly bright actually for a Monday morning.
0: Oh, still drunk then?
2: Well, we had a couple of glasses of tossed lemonade. I have to say, <laughs> but uh, it was all rather lovely. I went to see my friend Lorna Dallas. Mm who um I performed on the QE2 with about 40 years ago and we've stayed in touch ever since marvelous singer she was premiering her new show so uh, it was great fun where was that it was at um, crazy cox in piccadilly where in fact I'm going to be in september
0: oh marvelous
2: cuz I'm I'm going to be doing a 50th anniversary show there on the 18th of september so. 50
0: years bobby 50 years love it's true wow. yeah yeah And you've never stopped, do you? I've never stopped.
2: And mine hasn't really been what you could say was an orthodox career because I started out, as you well know, as a a piano player Mm -hmm. and I took advantage of all the other things that got offered along the way. So, you know, I ended up doing broadcasting, songwriting, appearing in musicals, appearing in pantos. And it's been a blast. I mean, I've had a wonderful time. Yeah, and, I bet. and I don't see myself giving up just yet. I don't think we ever retired, are we, in this business?
0: No, I think as long as you're enjoying it, keep going. Yes,
2: yes. Well, I had a, a meeting with my agent the other day and said to him that one of the things that lockdown has taught me is that in the future I only want to do things that appeal to me and in the main things that I can do from home because I've 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 got a lovely flat here in central London that in the past I've I've not really spent an awful lot of time in because I've been out in the road on tour and all of that. And I I'm not exactly slowing down, but I am getting uh more selective. Which I think we do as we get older, don't we?
0: Yeah. I have just myself turned down a job which I know that 10 years ago I would have jumped at. And I've turned it down because I want to go on holiday with my family, with my children and my grandchildren.
2: Marvellous. I think as you get older, your priorities become other than work. You know, you you want a, a nice, comfortable, personal life. And uh, show business doesn't really allow that because you have to go where the work is. Mm-hmm. And very often you want to be home with your family and your going up the motorway to do a one-nighter in Rochdale, you know, (laughs) missing out on a family occasion or whatever. But, I mean, uh, as I say, I'm I'm just thinking in terms now of just being a little bit more choosy.
0: Yeah, good on you. Well, let's find out what the things are that you're going to put into a time capsule for me.
2: Okay, Well, my first one is a year... And uh, it's 1972.
0: What a good year.
2: So I'm going to put that in my time capsule because that was the year that my life changed entirely because it was the year that I got to make my television debut on a show called Opportunity Knox, which mm. was hosted, as you probably remember, by Huey Green.
0: Yes, I remember. And,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I never think that anybody under the age of 45 has any idea who I am or what I've done in the past no. because it is now such a long time. Ago, but I'd auditioned for the show when I was 16. And because of the waiting list, it was such a a popular show. They made me wait two years before I got on the show. And on the 18th of September, 1972, I made my TV debut. And I went from earning £11 a week as an office boy in a theatrical agency to going into the Palladium to support Jack Jones at £150 a week. Wow. And £150 quid in 1972 was actually worth having.
0: That's a lot uh, of money, yeah. It
2: was a lot of money then. And from there, I also got my first recording contract and made my first album or my first single. And so, 72 for me was an absolutely golden year because it, it turned my life right around And set me on this path uh, that I've, I've continued on for the last 50 years.
0: And, of course, as that young 18-year-old, you had already been waiting, as you say, two years to do that. So you were working in a theatrical agent, so you you obviously knew what you wanted to do. Oh, absolutely. I'd been
2: playing in front of the public since I was 12. I used to do a lot of uh, charity performances and a certain amount of semi-professional work, and I I was playing piano in pubs when I was 14 or 15, (laughs) which, when you look back, was probably highly illegal, but (laughs) I did it anyway. So I auditioned for Hugh. when I was 16, And during that two-year wait, I became convinced that they'd forgotten all about me and that I wasn't going to do Opportunity Knocks. So in the meantime, I left school. I went to work in the record department of WH Smiths in Kingsway in London for a year. (laughs) Then I left there to go and work for Leslie Grade Limited as their office boy. But to be honest, I was killing time because I thought, well, if they're not going to use me on TV and Opportunity Knocks, my way into the business will be to become a butlin redcoat yes and that's what i'd intended but of course you couldn't sign for butlins until you were 18 so i was really just killing time but in the meantime we got the uh, television people calling up saying look we are sorry we made you wait so long but your time is now do you want to do the show and of course uh, things sort of kicked off from there
0: yes And it was now. You stormed that show. Well, I did. Well, I I won seven weeks
2: in a row. For people that don't know about Opportunity Knocks, it was like the forerunner to X Factor. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't in the days of phone voting. You had to actually... It was very quaint, actually, when you think back to it now. You had to send in postcards, and uh, you'd appear on the Monday night. Then they asked you to write postcards in for the people that you want to see come back. You'd be informed on the Thursday whether or not you've won. Mm. And then on the Friday, you'd go to rehearse, and then on the Saturday, we'd record. And you'd just keep going back week after week until somebody knocked you out. And I did seven weeks in a row, which, yeah. for a new performer, was a fantastic springboard.
0: It's a lovely thing, isn't it, the idea that all those people at home watched that programme and then sat down and wrote a card, took it to the postbox... Put a stamp on it. Yeah, because they yeah. wanted you to come back. exactly.
2: But there was a lot of effort involved then, so you had to really want to see the person back. Which, of course,
0: uh, also meant that by the time you finished it and went in to support Jack Jones at the London Palladium, you had an audience. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I'm convinced,
2: it sounds maybe a little swell-headed to say so, but I am convinced that a lot of the audience came to see me as much as they did Jack, because I had so much publicity at that point. I was in the papers every day, and I think it was also one of the reasons that um, Jack wasn't particularly welcoming
0: mm. shall
2: we say oh. mm. I think there's perhaps a certain amount of cuz uh, cuz I mean I, look at it from his point of view he's big an American star and suddenly this kid that's appeared from nowhere yeah. and is getting all this publicity I mean when I did the season with Jack by then I had a single in the top 40 and an album in the top 20 and yet I'd only been in the business a, a few weeks, and I think he was a little bit unsettled by
0: that. Was he shown and, the difference when he went out of the stage door?
2: Well, I guess so, because Ooh. there was a lot of young girls who were waiting for me, <laughs> and a lot of middle-aged matrons that were waiting for Jack. <laughs> yes. So I think he would have twigged the audience differential, you know?
0: Yeah, The lovely thing about this conversation, Bobby, is that both you and I are talking away about Jack Jones and we are absolutely certain who we're talking about. But anybody under the age of 30 will think, what, Jack Jones, the singer who's in the charts now? Oh, yes, of course.
2: Yes, yes. No, this is an entirely different Jack Jones. Mm.
0: This was Alan Jones's son.
2: Alan Jones had been a big Hollywood star and was famous for the Donkey Serenade, but his son Jack was a crooner. And at the time was being fated as the new Sinatra. Great singer, and I've got a lot of his albums. He was a very um,
0: good-looking he... man as well, wasn't he? Well, he
2: was, yeah. He was like a uh, matinee idol looks and everything, so all the women used to swoon. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he was uh, he was a huge star. Yes. And that was the first of my three seasons at the Palladium, because the first one was with him. The second one was with Victor Damone, another Hollywood star. Mm-hmm. And my third, and my favourite, was uh, with Dame Julie Andrews. <gasps> Wow. Where where I played uh, a two-week season with her,
0: yeah. Oh, how wonderful.
2: Well, you see, I'm a lucky boy because being a piano player, you can put me on a bill with any singer or comedian and we don't
0: clash, you know. And did you ever get to play with her? With Julie. Actually accompany her?
2: No, 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 no. I closed the first half of the show and she did the whole of the second half. Mm. But one of the stipulations of her contract is that she had to have a 25-piece orchestra and very often when you support a really big star... They say, well, you can use the rhythm section, but the rest of the orchestra, we're going to say for me, you know, in the second half, mm-hmm. but you can use the five piece rhythm section. She was very generous and she said, any other act on the bill that wants to use the full orchestra can do so. So, of course, I had all my arrangements expanded for these 25 pieces. And every night I'm going out on stage and playing Sondheim and what have you with this fantastic accompaniment. And I'm thinking to myself, I should be paying them for the privilege (laughs) of being here rather than them paying for me. But it was great, and she was so nice.
0: It's quite something playing. With
2: a big orchestra.
0: It's a real thrill, isn't it? It's
2: fantastic, nothing better. And on the opening night, there's a knock at my door... And she hadn't sent a PA or anything. She did this herself. She's at my dressing room threshold with a bottle of crystal champagne, a card and a red rose and a little cut glass vase and welcomed me to her show and said, you you mustn't leave the theatre tonight before you come into the dressing room and have a glass of champagne with me and Blake. And it was such a difference to the previous time. I mean, when I worked with Victor Moan, he had two very heavy looking people outside his dressing room at all time and I never even got to meet him. No. Never even got to say hello. How yeah. extraordinary. And he was breezed in and breezed out of the stage door and arrived, you know, just minutes before he went on. It was uh quite quite extraordinary.
0: So uh, appropriately called Damone. Damone. <laughs> yeah. But once again, a, a
2: great singer, and I was privileged to share the bill. But, you know, I'm always a great believer in you know being friendly, being nice. You know, we're, we're all there to do a job of work. Yeah, And I like to think as I get older, and I'm of the kind of vintage that they were then, that I'm much more welcoming to new performers. I just think that it's also unnecessary, the big star thing, nor that. I wasn't impressed.
0: Yeah, well, I think as long as you never forget your own feelings when you first started, which you clearly don't. Yes, it's true. So what led you to decide to do that? Did your parents just say you are going to have piano lessons and you started and you fell in love with it? Or was there something that spurred you? Uh, There was an
2: incident that triggered the whole thing. Hmm. I used to visit my father's mother and father, my paternal grandparents, Mm -hmm. in the east end of London. They had a little two up and two down in uh, Canning Town. But in this little house of theirs, they had an upright piano, which was a family heirloom. It would appear that nobody played it or showed any interest in it. And as far as they were concerned, it was a place for putting pot plants and photo frames. Yes. I don't remember this, of course, but I was told that as a four or five-year-old, I used to go over to the piano, lift the lid... And most kids that are confronted with a piano keyboard for the first time will bash at it to make as much noise out of it as they could. Mm. But I'm told that I used to pick out little tunes single-fingeredly on this piano. And my mum and dad, God bless them, thinking that perhaps there was a degree of talent there, persuaded my grandparents to transfer the piano over from their house to ours. And the moment that it became part of our household, I was on it every day, and by ear, I just started playing. And uh, I was sent to formal lessons when I was eight and kept those up for 10 years. But my start was completely by ear and was rather a surprise to both my mother and father because there'd been no history in our family at all of there being a musician or anybody that had showbiz aspirations. No. But they coped with it really, really well, you know, and were very encouraging. And they saw how much I was getting a buzz out of it. And I did say to them at a very early age, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a musician. I want to be a pro. Mm. And they did everything they possibly could to open up those doors. I mean, it was my dad that applied to Thames Television for the opportunity Knox audition forms. And it was my dad that drove me every weekend back and forth to these pub gigs. And, you know, I look back and I see that a lot of sacrifices were made, you know, in order to allow me to do what I now do. And yeah, and that was the start of it all.
0: How brilliant.
2: And of course, I was pretty hopeless at school. I wasn't an academic like my brother was, but I was always the first person that they called upon if there was going to be a school review mm. or something that needed music. Yeah, you know? yeah. So we all of us have our own areas of expertise. And uh, very early on in life, I found that that was mine.
0: How gorgeous. Well, then, we should put the whole of 1972 into the time capsule. The whole of 1972. It
2: It was a wonderful year. (laughs) And, as I say, it changed my life entirely.
0: Fantastic. That's your first item then, Bobby. So what's number two?
2: Number two is my jukebox. Oh. I have a jukebox at home, which was a present to myself for my 50th birthday. I'd always wanted one, and over the years, I'd kept all my vinyl singles... And I wanted somewhere to play them. Mm. And of course, a lot of these songs back in the 60s and 70s, I first heard on a jukebox. And there's something very evocative about hearing the record rather than a CD, which is clean on a single. You get the clicks and the pops and I don't mind that at all. It just reminds me of my youth. And the reason that I'm putting my jukebox in, as opposed to a favourite performer is because in my jukebox, I've got 70 records... And it means that I'm not confined to just one person. I've got a choice of 70 different artists <laughs> that I can listen to at any given time. Yes. Um, a lot of what is in my collection on the jukebox is Dusty Springfield, right. who I was a huge fan of. And in fact, um, if I turn there, can you see that picture? I can. That is Dusty. And there's a second one of hers, well, on my piano, which says, to Bobby, I hear you are truly wondrous. Love and Kisses Dusty. Because she and I shared the same record label, but we never met. But we would pass messages to each other via the various people that we dealt with at Phillips Records.
0: And she became rather reclusive, didn't she, later on in life?
2: She did, yeah. She moved to America for a while, thinking that she was going to have a bumper career out in the States. And apart from a couple of hit records, I mean, she never became the name there that she is here. Then she went to Amsterdam, which were the sort of wilderness years. Mm. and then was brought back from Amsterdam by the Pet Shop Boys to make the comeback.
0: Marvellous. I mean
2: she made great choices over the years in terms of her material because she was one of the few girl singers that insisted on choosing her own songs. Right. You know a lot of people like Sandy Shaw and Lulu their recording managers made them at times record novelty songs like Puppet on a String or Boom Bang A Bang and The Boat That I Row and what have you but Dusty wouldn't have any of that so as a result when you look back on her catalogue, all the material is really strong and really classy. Mm. And she was always my favourite singer. She's my favourite lady singer. And my favourite male singer is Johnny Mathis, who I adore. Yeah, beautiful. So there's a certain amount of them on the jukebox. But in the time capsule, in it goes, with all my favourite music on it. (laughs) And it's a joy. And a lot of people buy jukeboxes as a stick of furniture, but I have to tell you that mine gets played every single day.
0: How wonderful. Every
2: single day, yeah.
0: It's a fantastic sound, isn't it, a jukebox? It is. I love it. Dusty is a very good choice to have on it. I've heard that she changed her mind about Son of a Preacher Man late in life. She always sang, The only boy who could ever reach me
2: Was the son of a preacher man. And then she heard Aretha Franklin do it, and she changed the phrasing. Mm. And she went, the only boy that could ever reach me. Goes, the only
0: boy who could ever
2: reach me. Oh, that's me. it, that's it. The only boy who could ever reach me. Bump. Was it a little yeah. And Dusty says, oh, God, if only I'd known about that when I recorded my version, I'd have done it the same way. <laughs> well,
0: I prefer hers, actually. I do too.
2: I do as well. That's one of the most played records that I have on the Jukie.
0: Oh, yeah. I bet, yeah. What a great song.
2: But my jukebox is full of Beatles, Tamla Motown, all the stuff that I grew up with. Yeah. And, you know, I I know that it's a generational thing, but, you know, I think that I grew up in a golden era in terms of music. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was much more individuality, I feel. That's just me being an old git.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Almost certainly, and I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that you choose 1972 and actually nearly all the songs you've chosen are from the 60s.
2: Well, that was the era um, when Dusty started with the Springfields in 1962. I'd have been eight years old. So they were my formative years. It was when I was really becoming aware of music. Mm. Actually, to be honest, I became aware even earlier than that because my first crush, if you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> was Alma Cogan, who I used to love yeah? as a five or six-year-old, you know. Mm. And then, of course, Daddy came along and I switched to Allegiance. But uh, my whole life, really, music has um,
0: been central to everything that I do. And is there a Russ Conway song on there?
2: Uh, well, there is, uh-huh. yes. Sidesaddle, yes. because, of course, when I was growing up, I used to listen a lot to Russ Conway records. My parents had them in their collection. And I used to play along. Right. And in later life, I got to know him as well. Did you? Well, on my second album, which was called All Time Piano Hits, I did my own version of all the biggest piano hits of the previous 40 years. And of course, one of the biggest was Mm Sidesaddle. So I covered it. And the week of release of the album, I got a letter in the post from Russ saying... Norman Newell, who was our shared record producer, has just sent me um, a copy of you playing Side Saddle. And congratulations. To my mind, only two people play it the way that I wrote it and intended it to be played. He said, and those two people are Russ Conway and Bobby Crush. Wow. And I still have that letter to this day. Oh, I bet you Very do. proud. <laughs> Very proud. And then when I did my summer season in Eastbourne, Russ lived in Eastbourne and he turned up every matinee day and sat in the Royal Box and then would come backstage and have tea and
0: oh, how we got marvelous. to know each other
2: quite well. So a lovely man, very yes. encouraging, which is surprising because, you know, I steamed in and took away a lot of his work because I was kind of like the 70s version of Russ. I suppose so. And he was still out there and performing at that point, Yeah, you know, so he could have been a bit ratty about this young upstart suddenly appearing out of nowhere, but he was lovely, really nice man.
0: I didn't yeah. meet him, but I understand he was quite a shy man.
2: Very shy, yeah, and very nervous. I don't think he was 100% comfortable performing in front of the public because he'd started out originally as an accompanist mm. you know, to other people, and then suddenly the spotlight was shone on him. And I don't think that was ever his intention. No. But great piano player. Yes. Oh my goodness. I, I learned such a lot from him.
0: I have a real fondness for Russ Conway because as a young boy, My parents, whenever he came on the television, my father would say, Russ knows you're there, Mike. He'll wink at you in a minute. And of course, Russ Conway was famous for winking at the camera. On the Billy Cotton Band Show. On the Billy Cotton Band Show. But I was always convinced that was specifically for me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But as I say, having met him later in life, I just realised what a genuine, lovely
0: bloke he was. Mm.
2: Really, really smashing. And and as I said uh, earlier, very encouraging to me. And I love the fact that I've got this letter from him, which I treasure
0: Yes, I bet. Well, the next time I'm in London, I'm going to pop round and we're going to spend an afternoon listening to your Duke box.
2: You would be more than welcome. I'll put a glass of something lovely in your hand and <laughs> you can work your way through the 70 records. <laughs> well, I can't wait.
0: But in the meantime, we'll keep it safe in the time capsule for you. Absolutely. Please do. OK, so we're on to item number three. Okay, we're going to pause this podcast for a moment while we play you some ads. Not always, but we live in a state of constant pessimism. See you shortly. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with Bobby Crush. Let's see what else he will choose to put in his time capsule.
2: Item number three is a pair of piano cufflinks, Mm. which I'm going to show you now. Right. These.
0: Oh, yes. Of grand pianos with?
2: With BC on them. Beautiful. Uh, Now... You know when somebody says to you, if there was a fire at your house, what is the first thing you would rescue? Mm -hmm. It would be those, in my case, because they were given to me by my mum and dad on my 21st birthday. Mm. And my mum and dad were very ordinary... East End people who never had an awful lot of money and yet somehow managed to get these custom made for me for my 21st birthday. And I think they're very, very precious. And I wear them on stage. Every time I appear on stage, I I have those on. So I would certainly put those in my time capsule because it's an item that is uh, very dear to my heart. Neither of my mum and dad are here any longer, of course. In fact, they've both of them been gone 30-plus years. But there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of them. And most certainly when I put these cufflinks on, I'm grateful to them and I revere their memory.
0: Yes. And that demonstrates, doesn't it, that despite it not being their world or a world that they seemingly would understand at all, they completely understood your passion for it.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They were amazing. I mean, it's not really until you get older that you think about these things. I mean, uh, they're gone now and I can't do this, but I would love to have sat down at this stage in my life and talked to them about their lives But you don't when you're a kid because they're your mum and dad and they're there for you and uh, it's very selfish to look back and think I was the priority and maybe their lives weren't of great interest to me, you know, what had gone before. But now I want to know what went before.
0: Yes. I think it's absolutely normal for people, particularly teenagers, to be thinking about their own future. Oh, yes. And it seems almost as if your parents, in their 40s, their life is virtually over, as far as you're concerned. Oh,
2: exactly, yes. But I look back now, and I think I should have asked more questions and been a little bit more inquisitive about their lives that they had before us four kids all came along. Yes. Because that was the other thing. As I say, they managed to get these wonderful cufflinks for me at a time when they were raising four of us, you know. So I don't think it could have been that easy for them. No. But, of course, I was able, a little bit later on, to cushion them a bit. So I was very glad that I was able to do that
0: for them and repay them in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So what did they do, your parents? I mean, your mother obviously brought up children.
2: Yeah, my mother was the old-fashioned style housewife. My dad was a commercial vehicle sales manager at a Ford main dealer, but left them when I became famous Mm -hmm. to accompany me on the road and drove me to all my gigs, arranged the hotels, did my VAT and continued doing that right up until I was in my early twenties, by which time he'd fallen ill and I was having to do all that kind of stuff for myself. Mm. But uh, yeah, uh, at the launch of my career, he was very visible. He was, he was around and took care of a lot of the things that were out of my realm, really. He took a lot of the responsibility off of me so that all I had to worry about was arriving at the theatre and giving a good show and being the best that I could be in that situation.
0: What a blessing. Um, Yes. Because if you start quite young in the business, everybody makes the mistake of not keeping enough money back to pay tax, not organising things like VAT not getting the business side of the thing sorted. You only discover that when everything goes wrong later.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, He kept me grounded as well. I mean, I was never allowed to become swell-headed or too grand. It had its minus points, of course, as well as its plus points, because you're touring with your dad. Ah. So you're being kept an eye on. Mm -hmm. I still managed to have my adventures, but it was all done (laughs) in a very sort of cloak and dagger kind of a way, you know. But looking back, the positive aspects outweighed the minus points, because it really was very helpful in terms of getting me started.
0: Yeah. And travelling around, touring around, driving all over the place, there must be conversations you had, not necessarily about the things that you wish you could ask now, but there will be others that you'll treasure, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely.
2: I mean, I don't remember having that many conversations with him about his early life, and that's what I miss now. That's what I think I should have really uh, pumped him about. But uh, they were great people.
0: Lovely. Well, I shall take those gorgeous cufflinks your parents so thoughtfully had made for you for your 21st. Yeah. Let's put them in there and keep them safe because they are precious. They are. Okay, we've got two more items to go, Bobby.
2: Right. uh, My fourth item is a restaurant, Joe Allen's, (laughs) in central London, which is one of my favourite haunts. I've been going there since the 80s. And I've had so many great nights there with so many wonderful people. It's quite showbiz orientated. So you often go there and you find mates in a corner, uh, always somebody to talk to. And I think that over the years, I must have spent so much money there. <laughs> so much. I I should have bought shares. And of course, when we all went into lockdown, I missed it terribly. It took a long while to reopen. But it is now reopened and I go once or twice a week. We have wonderful nights there and I always dread them saying enough is enough and we're going to close our doors because I would miss it terribly. Mm. And I've moved now into an area in central London, which means that I can walk home (laughs) or in some cases stagger home from Joe Allen's. So I would like to put that in the time capsule because I've had some great nights there and I look forward to more lovely nights there as well.
0: Mm. It's moved location, though, hasn't it, in its time? It
2: has. Well, it's only just gone around the corner Mm -hmm. and the new Joe Allen's, they've recreated it decor-wise exactly the same way as the old uh, restaurant in Exeter Street. Mm. The irony of it is that they had to move out of that premises because Robert De Niro was buying the whole block in order to build a hotel, and uh, it never happened. So they could actually have stayed exactly where they were. Yes. And if you go in there now, in terms of the decor, you think, oh, well, it's just exactly like, uh," you know, with all the posters up on the wall, all the flops, Mm. and the staff are lovely, and it just feels like home, Mm. you know. So I would definitely want to put that in my little capsule.
0: Gorgeous. Unfortunately, I have a rather sad memory from Joe Allen's, which is that I left my agent after having been with her for many, many years, and she said, Oh, my God, and she said, Let's go. And she took me out, took me to Joe Allen's. We had lunch that went on into the evening, and she cried. Oh, oh no. And I, I felt terrible. I felt really terrible. It's
2: always difficult. I mean, I've had more agents than you've had opt
0: dinners. You know? <laughs> At Joe Allen's. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. I mean, I always think that there's no point in staying with an agent if you don't feel that the mix is right. And I hate having to say to somebody, look, this isn't working out and I'm going to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But in our business, it's sometimes a necessity. Yes. you know, There have been occasions where an agent has taken on a bigger name than me. And you feel that they're getting all the attention, and you suddenly become, you know, the small fish in the big pool. Yes, that's often the cue to sling your hook and look elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, having said all that, I'm very happy with my presentation, <laughs> and so if it's listening in, <laughs> almost it's certainly o- it's okay, David. You're
0: safe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I once left an agent because they said to me, Mike, why are you an actor? And I said, Well, I really like it. He said, Actors are such shits. <laughs> i thought this is not the man for me well that sounds like the pep talk that i was
2: given by my uh, my music teacher at school he said young crush because strangely enough crush is my real name it's a great name everybody thinks that it's a stage name but my dad was thomas crush and his father before him was william crush and i come from a long line of crushes um, <laughs> it's just that when i auditioned for opportunity knocks I auditioned as Robert Crush Mm. and just before I went on the show, they said, we've got a suggestion before you come on the show. We think you ought to shorten your name from Robert to Bobby because we think Bobby Crush is a really good stage name. I'd have called myself Margaret if it meant getting on the telly. So (laughs) I said, absolutely, call me whatever you want. So, of course, my music teacher takes me to to one side and he says, Young Crush, I want to give you a bit of advice. He said, I think you're very, very talented, but you'll never get anywhere playing commercial rubbish. Oh. You should divert your talent into classical music. Now, I was never classically trained and I never had a great deal of interest in classical music. So, of course, a year goes by. And the commercial rubbish that he was so anti suddenly had got me a top 20 album and a top 40 single. And I was invited back to school for Speech Day, <laughs> and I thought, oh, how marvellous! I'm going to see Mr. Jones or whatever his name was, and I'll be able to rub his nose in it. But I wanted to say, ah oh, I told you so. Um, I don't know how I got on that subject. I'm going to get on that subject. No. Yeah,
0: it's funny. Isn't it? <laughs> I digress. Yes. So you've got one other thing you want to put into a time capsule, which is something you want to get rid of. Yes. Mm.
2: Well, I don't necessarily want to get rid of it, but I want to get rid of the memory of it because it was so horrible. What I will put in the time capsule as the thing that I want to elbow is a musical that I once wrote called Sherwood. Mm -hmm. The New Theatre Cardiff had a spectacular pantomime of Robin Hood at their theatre, and they had spent a fortune on sets and costumes And they had decided that in order to get further value out of the sets and the costumes, they would change it from a pantomime to a musical. And because I had been in the previous year's pantomime, which was Humpty Dumpty with Keith Harris, who I'd written the Orville hit
0: for. Yes, of course.
2: And I'd in fact written a whole score for Keith, for Humpty Dumpty. They approached me to write a score for a Robin Hood musical called Sherwood. Mm. And I looked upon it as an opportunity to establish me as a writer, because at that point, all I'd really been known for was writing this novelty hit. I mean, albeit a big hit. I mean, I wish I could fly way up to the sky, (laughs) 350,000 copies. And my accountant says it was the best five days' work that I ever did in my life. (laughs) So anyway, I was very excited at the prospect. And because I didn't want any other distraction while I was writing the score, I said to my then agent, Dorothy Solomon, that I didn't want to do any work other than writing the score because I wanted to make it the best that it could be. So at that point, I turned down a lot of lucrative work. But I came up with the score, which I thought was um, good, and I gave it over to the management company. They loved it. They reckoned that they had a couple of hit songs within the score that they could have taken out of the show and had covered. And the deal was that I was to be paid £10,000 upon delivery of the score, and then I would be on 6% of the box office take when the show went on. Wow. So, dates were in the book. It was going to open at the Mayflower Theatre in Southampton, and then it was going to go into the Dominion Theatre in Tottenham Court Road. Wow. And in fact, I have a picture here at home of the marquee, Sherwood, Music and Lyrics by Bobby Crush, and it's the marquee for The Show That Never Happened a new production company was formed in order to finance the whole thing. And um, after I delivered the score and got the thumbs up for the score, I then sort of sat back and waited for the money to come in. They started rehearsals. Stephanie Lawrence who had been Evita, was at that point in Starlight Express and left Starlight Express to be our Maid Marian. Wow. We had got a wonderful cast together. There was going to be a 15-piece orchestra in the pit. Arrangements were being written at that point. We went into rehearsals at the Wimbledon Theatre before opening at Southampton. And we got about a week or 10 days into rehearsals and checks started to bounce, and word started getting back to us that people like set designers and costume makers had not been paid. Oh. We were led to believe that the finance was fully in place, but it, it was underfunded, basically. Then I got a call from Baz Boy from the Daily Mail who was the first journalist to get wind of the fact that all was not well with Sherwood. Ah. And uh, he said, oh, I understand there are financial difficulties and stuff. And at that point, I wasn't fully aware of what was going on. All I know is that I'd given up six months of my life to write the score and the rehearsals were taking place and we were all on target to go into Southampton. Mm. Sure enough, a couple of days thereafter, the whole thing got shut down. The finances were in such an appalling way at that point that nobody wanted to take the risk. So we all went to the pub, and it was like a wake. Yeah. And I felt as though someone had died, you know. And the score that I've written has never seen the light of day. I was so devastated by the whole thing that I put it in a drawer and I said, that's it. You know, it's tainted material. I was so crushed, once again, the pun, <laughs> um, that it was my one and only attempt at writing a full-scale musical because I just found the whole thing so disappointing. Uh, I'm currently writing my autobiography and, of course, there's going to be a whole chapter on Sherwood. Yes. But if you think, if you think about it, It is a tainted subject because nobody's ever managed to write a successful Robin Hood musical. No. There was Twang, of course, that Lionel Bart did. There was Robin of Sherwood that went into the Piccadilly Theatre with Mike Holloway. And I think there have been a couple of other attempts. I mean, it would never have been my first choice as a a subject for a musical, but it came fait accompli. You know, they'd got the set, they'd got the costumes. They said, we haven't got the score. Would you like to write it? And, of course, Mm. I said yes. So it's a memory that even now when I think back, it it saddens me a great deal. So I'm going to put that in the time capsule as a little period in my life that I was terribly disappointed about.
0: I'm not surprised. Yeah. But maybe, maybe if we get in touch with Brian Adams... (laughs) If you could just put "Everything I Do, I Do It For You" as the opening song,
2: absolutely. Maybe they'll turn the whole thing around. I'm not sure that Brian Adams would agree with you, but it's a lovely thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to hear it. So maybe one day we
2: work in a, a, an industry where there's disappointment a plenty. Yes, know? Aud- auditions that you don't get. Mm -hmm. You have to be prepared for rejection in show business. But it was so harsh because, as far as I could see, we were off and running. One day it's marvelous, and the next day
0: you're feeling like giving it all up. And one day you're going to get 10 grand, and (laughs) the next day. Nothing. Anyway, onward and upward. Onward and upward. We can always go to Joe Allen's. <laughs> we
2: can always go to chance and cry in our beer,
0: <laughs> <laughs> along with everybody on every other table. <laughs> you often find people
2: gathering at Joe's, you know, to commiserate, you know, about a show that hasn't happened
0: or yes, but that nearly always greatly ends up with laughter. Oh, always, always. But what a wonderful life, and what a wonderful set of things to go into the time capsule. They really do give a picture of the things that you've done. Thank you, and also the. The person you are.
2: Thank you. Well, as I said earlier, this is my 50th year in the business and I intend carrying on as long as people want to hear me play and see me perform. But you're quite right. It has been a really strange career because when I was 18, starting out, I'd never have dreamt that, you know, 40 or 50 years later, I'd be swanning up and down in panto in ladies slumberwear <laughs> with a ton of makeup on my fizzog and uh, having the time of my life.
0: Oh, how brilliant. Yeah. But there we are, Bobby. How lovely to detour- talk to you thank you so much for doing this it's been a joy
2: you're very very welcome thank you
0: you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest Bobby Crush. If you enjoyed it then do subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Something for which we're always grateful. And you can follow me and my time capsule on social media Twitter, Instagram and Facebook where we're always ready to answer your questions. The theme tune that's playing in the background was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available to listen to or download on Spotify anytime you like. This was a cast-off production for Acast and it was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to practice. Yeah, I'm making a record of my new song later this week and Bobby has agreed to accompany me. <laughs> what an honour. Yeah, we did a little tryout a couple of days ago, you know, sorting out the tempo and the key, that sort of thing. And in the end, I asked Bobby to play it in A flat because I thought that sounded best. He said, well, I've heard you sing, Mike, so I'll play it in A. You can flatten it yourself. Bye. Bye.